so much great Advertising Week content, so little time. Snackable AI is now helping you navigate podcasts like this one, event sessions, and other content with chapters, topic tags, and more. Find the insights that matter to you faster than ever before. Learn more at snackable.ai. Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is Martha Boudreau. Martha is the Executive Vice President and Chief Communications and Marketing Officer, overseeing all of their integrated communications and marketing for one of the most dynamic, but under the radar as dynamic organizations that I know of, my demographic, finally against a chance, Martha, to talk about my demo, uh, AARP. And Martha, I am so thrilled to have you here and get a chance to really dive deeply into the most valuable part of our demography, which is the AARP demographic. Matt, thank you so much for having me. And you hit it right, right off the bat, the most valuable, the 50 plus have more spending power than any other demographic in this country. And like you said, it's a vibrant, it's a vibrant demographic. And organizationally, we're just doing so much that um, that we bring to the 50 plus every single day. And I'm glad that you recognize it. Well, I, I did long before I, I hit my uh, 50s. I'm now 58, so I am right in your wheelhouse. Um, but there's so much ground to cover with you, Martha. And I wanna dive very deeply into the demographic, what's understood, what's misunderstood. I think AARP is playing an absolutely vital and brilliant role in advocating for the power of that audience. And I wanna talk about that as well. But Martha, let's start by talking a little bit about you. Mm -hmm. And you had a great run about 18 years at one of the great, great PR shops. And they do much more than just PR, of course. I'm talking about Fleischman Hilliard where you ultimately rose uh, up to be president of the Atlantic and Latin American uh, divisions of Fleischmann Hilliard. That's a big, big job. Talk about that experience. You started off as a relatively young lady there, uh, mm -hmm. and it's unusual to spend 18 years in one place. Uh, and that's been a hallmark of your career has sort of been stability and longevity in an age where people's career movements are often much more peripatetic. So I'd love to start by getting your reflections going back to the beginning of that long and successful tenure at Fleischmann Hilliard. Right. Well, you know, uh, Matt, I was lucky because I joined Fleischmann um, at a very, I joined Fleischmann when I was 24 years old. And I found an organization, a company that I believed in, whose values I shared, and a company that was growing at an, at an unbelievably rapid rate. And so as I grew professionally and the firm was growing, I was able to hold a lot of different positions that challenged and challenged me in new and different ways on a regular basis. And, you know, along actually I was there for um, for 27 years and along the way, you know, like anybody who's somewhere for a long time, every once in a while you say, oh, have I been here too much, too long? Right. Is it time to to move along? And then the agency would say, hey, Martha, you know, we'd like you to do this. We'd like you to do that. And it was always challenging to me. 
So um, it is a great, it is a great agency. I had a tremendous career there and wouldn't change a thing about it. I, I really enjoyed the whole thing. So 27 years, that's even longer than our crack research team came up with. <laughs> Talk about that experience then starting off in the business. And I think one of the things that's a little bit lost today, when somebody was onboarded at a young age, you said 24, there was a lot that went into training and mentoring and really setting people up for success. Today's times, especially in this remote or quasi remote environment, I worry about that, about how we onboard people, how we train them. Talk about that experience that you had, because Fleischmann had a great reputation for how they used to train and, and really enable their young people to succeed almost right from the beginning. Yeah, Fleischmann, uh, Fleischmann believe, believes, continues to believe very strongly in, in the fact that it's all about the people. It's all about precisely who you're hiring, not only for their skill set, but also for culture was a big part of it. And was uh, when I was hired, the CEO was John Graham. And John insisted that as the company was expanding, he meet every new hire that was brought in. And now, of course, that was back when the firm only had five offices. And pretty soon the firm was expanding so quickly, John couldn't do that. But I was one of those people that got a chance to meet with him and get to know him early on. And so the onboarding process was as much about who our clients were, what um, you know, what our responsibilities were with our client, as it was about the firm and what we stood for and how we showed up every day and what was the culture and what was uh, what were our responsibilities to that culture and to make the culture come alive. And I think the firm is still known for that unique culture. And what I learned in that was the power of bringing people together as teams. And so Fleischman always had a great way of having a real mix of senior and junior talent um, so that you were always learning from people around you. And when you have a culture of integration and collaboration, the other thing you learn is that there are people around you that bring different perspectives you know, to bear and you learn from that. So it was a real learning um, uh, environment, if you will. And that that carried on the whole time I was there and I know it carries on today. So I consider myself extremely lucky for, for joining the forum when I did, where I was professionally, and then really being given the opportunities to grow. And I bring that also to how I interact with more junior staff, knowing that I have a responsibility to help them realize their potential as well. Such a vital part of being a successful leader is how you nurture and bring on, you know, those under us. I, I couldn't agree more with you. So you gravitated towards sort of the political arena and public affairs. And I know you at Michigan, we shared a major. I was a political science major as well. I went to Emory. Uh, and uh, was that by accident, Martha, or by design? Did you always sort of have that in mind for a career path? I didn't. And, you know, I'm one of those people that came up into the business through internships. And I did a number of internships on Capitol Hill and also with one of the cabinet agencies. And that sent me down the path of working on Capitol Hill and through politics. But then I realized that I, am, I was interested in policy, but not necessarily the political part of it. 
And that's when I gravitated over and joined Fleischman. But I think being in Washington, it was essential for me to spend time in agencies, in the government, on the Hill, so that I could bring that perspective to my clients once I get into the consulting business. Yeah, I always felt my early career was in City Hall. I worked for Ed Koch, whose name you may remember, uh, in the mid-80s, initially something called the Commission on the Year 2000, which was a blue ribbon panel to plot a course for New York's future. And then I started the New York City Sports Commission when I was 23. So wow. that, was, that was quite some time ago. Uh, but I always felt that grounding of understanding sort of how not necessarily the politics of politics, but how policy and how the government works. I always felt that knowledge was very helpful to me to this very day in the private sector. Yeah, I, th I think that's right. And, you know, in Washington, of course, there are so many different voices and industries and companies want their perspective known and understood. And as as you're as you're using communications and marketing to influence understanding, um, and knowledge, you have to understand where those decisions are made and how they're made and what are the channels, you know, that lead to in information and communications into your target audience. And, you know, working on the Hill was a vital part of that. And then when I joined Fleischman, the Washington office was, I mean, there was like five people there. It was very, very young. And it was a time of immense change in communications and in the public affairs practice in particular. Um, when, you know, back in the day, there was, you know, grassroots organizing, which was really just um, had less to do with authentically coalescing people behind something and more about being able to to um, to create coalitions of industry that sent out all the communications and it evolved over time. And, you know, the, you know, Matt, one of the things I, I bet I've said it 200 times over the years one of the great things about this industry is that it changes all the time and it ha that hasn't that's the one thing that hasn't changed is that the the um the speed of change in terms of how people communicate you know what vehicles they use what channels they use you know everything from the length of a communication to the use of imagery and over the time that i was at fleischman it changed dramatically and so i learned to embrace that change and to always be looking ahead, you know, and keeping what worked, but embracing things um, that were kind of on the cutting edge. And I think that no, that that remains the same now. I mean, when you look at where we are in this day and age and, you know, at AARP, we have to factor in multiple generations. I mean, there's five generations in the workforce right now. And when you factor those in and each generation, has different ways of absorbing information, being communicated to, responding to marketing, it's a big task. So being able to change and adapt, I learned early in my career. And, um, you know, it's funny for someone because I've lived in the same house for 30 years. My parents still live in the house that I grew up in. So parts of my life are very set and don't change. But when it, when it comes to you know, professionally, I embrace change and I lean into it, not for change's sake, but because that's the only way you stay current. Yeah, and, and that's one of the things I've observed during your tenure at AARP, that you have ridden that wave of technological change brilliantly uh, for an organization that, you know, didn't always have that reputation. And I think your tenure, Martha, to your credit completely and that of your team, you are as contemporary as one could be in using the, the modern 
tools, if you will, in the toolkit. And that's to your credit. You know, I really appreciate that. And I also appreciate you calling out the team because we all know that we, you know, we are all only as good as the teams that surround us. And AARP is um, is filled with immensely talented people. And because we have such a large marketing apparatus, I say marketing, it's really public education because we are a social mission organization and we are the country's largest publisher. So we are we are constantly creating and distributing information and we have to know what channels to use. And when you bring a marketing mindset to it, basically what that means is we're always testing and iterating. You know, we're always looking to change and looking really at, you know, small segments and who's reacting to this and, you know, the A-B testing across all of our channels for everything we do. And so again, it's that mindset that we can always be better um, and, and the other thing is, you know, every once in a while over the last few years, we bring in an outside firm that really, um, really takes a deep look at our channel mix and, um, and the effectiveness of it. And they, you know, they have come back twice now and said, you are optimized, you are highly effective, right? But our challenge is, and I don't know if you see this, um, if you remember, but on the outside, if you see this, our challenge is to be less channel optimized and more communicating holistically about the organization um, so that people understand who we are, regardless of where they interact with us. Of course, I'm a member, by the way. Let's just let's just tackle that right away. And I got my uh, mail yesterday. I've been out of the office and I got my AARP magazine with Tyler Perry on the cover. So I am right with you, Martha. Good. Excellent. Oh. You opened up a, a real Pandora's box here and let let's let's stay in the moment for a second. We talk about the pace of change and navigating the pace of change. We talked a little bit about your uh, lengthy tenure in public affairs and public relations at Fleischmann. When you were there, and when I was working earlier in my career, I, I spent some time and started uh, the sports practice at Hill and Knowlton. So oh. it was my one year of sort of in my career of legitimate agency experience. And uh, at that time, in that era, you had relationships with the press and reporters. And if something was happening, you would work with somebody, it might be embargoed, it might be an exclusive, you kind of, there were sort of rules of engagement. Today, the immediacy of a tweet, of a post, and the equalization, democratization would be a word, uh, um, uh, you know, every voice has a voice now. Mm -hmm. and an amplifier. The internet has democratized that and made everybody who wants to have an opinion can have one and can very quickly get that opinion out there. So the ability to plan and react from a public affairs perspective has gone completely out the window mm -hmm. and changed the game completely for professionals. I would think, given the choice, you can be in that career then or now I think I would pick then from mm. a public affairs position. What, what would you choose? Wow, what a great question. Um, it was more controlled. And I guess that means it was easier than to control the message. I find it 
dynamic, both for good and for bad. Now, more dynamic now. And the other thing is being able to segment out our audiences, being able to understand what this part of our, our membership uh, wants to hear, needs to hear, what this part wants to hear, and being able to use channels to, to direct to them is such a gift, you know, before, as opposed to just mass market and dealing with um, communications tools that were more like blunt instruments. And now, and yeah, they're now where we are because everybody can have a microphone, because everybody can be all over all channels. We have to be more clear about who are we? What do we engage with? What do we stand for? And I'll tell you, this is one of the great things about working at AARP. We were founded 64 years ago um, by this woman, Ethel Percy Andrus, um, who was a retired school teacher. And she went to visit a friend who was also a retired school teacher who was living in an outbuilding behind a farm somewhere. She had no money, no family, nothing. And basically Ethel said, how can this person have worked their whole life and have nothing? This can't work. And that motivated her to action to represent, now this is interesting. Now this is 64 years ago, to represent retired school teachers. So retired hmm. school teachers across the country joined the National Retired School Teacher Association. And then within 10 years, so many people who were at that time over the age of 60 contacted her and said, I'm not a teacher, but can I join? Because I need help. That's when she started AARP. So knowing clearly, she started the first mail order pharmacy. She took on drug pricing in 1961. She testified before the Hill. And we have had the recent win with lowering the uh, cost of prescription drugs, which is huge. It's who we are. So when you know who you are, when you know what your purpose is, when you know what your voice is, it makes it easier to react and to know when to engage and when not to engage. And I think that sense of purpose that we hear so much about these days, you know, organizations that don't know their purpose and haven't communicated it, I think have a much harder time than we do. We're very clear about who we are. We don't back down. We don't change midstream. We know where we're going and we know the role. And I will just say this, uh, consumers have told us over the last couple of years as we've done research and asked them, what do you want from AARP? They want two things, Matt. They want us to be a wise friend and they told us they want us to be a fierce defender. Mm. And so whether you're working, fighting to lower the cost of prescription drugs where you're a fierce defender, or you're helping somebody figure out how to provide caregiving to a loved one, or you're working with a 65-year-old who wants to find a job and get back into the job market, that's our wise friend and fierce defender coming to life. We know who we are. So regardless of what the sounds and the voices are out there across all those channels, we know where we're going, and that makes it easier for us. Great answer, and I loved where you took it. And that leads us to really what is, I think, the most interesting thing that I could possibly ask you. Uh, and it really combines those two things of being there and also being a fierce advocate that you just referenced. Let's talk about the missed marketing and advertising opportunity of brands and those that advise brands miss out on by putting so much of their casino cash 
on my kids who are almost 25 and 27 and caring much less about the 58 year old. This is what I find astounding. If you just, if you put sort of traditional PR and communications to the side for a minute and you just look at marketing, the marketing industry, right? Advertising and marketing. These are data-driven people. And yet they miss this entire demographic of 110 million people. They don't understand the lifestyle. They don't, they haven't looked at the data in terms of how much spending power they have. They don't look at how they interact with brands. It is astounding to me that this industry, again, so data-driven, is completely blind to 110, 120 million people in this country alone. And I believe that goes back to ageism, preconceived, preconceived notions about age and what aging means in terms of lifestyle. And that ageism and, and those preconceived notions start early. And unfortunately, it's kind of an, uh, 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 a negative um, uh, cycle because the advertising industry reinforces stereotypes on aging, which makes people continue to believe that aging is a bad thing. So we've got an industry sector that is not looking at the data. You've got people on the client side who are fixated with thinking the only way to sell product is to grow a new audience with a younger demographic. And then you have a societal uh, problem with ageism to begin with. So it's all of those things that come together. You hit it right on the head. I mean, for an industry that prides itself on data and use of data to make informed decisions, it is just odd to say the least that there is so much being missed here yeah. and that the fixation on uh, on youth, let's use that word, uh, in a non-negative sense, but just in a factual sense. Can you say non-negative? I'm not sure you can say that. Uh, but why don't they get it, Martha? I, I don't get it. And I've joked for years, having nothing to do with AARP or our conversation today, you know, on Great Minds, I've joked for years that demographically I'm dead to most brands. Right. But I'm the one who has money and I'm like that Rockefeller, but I have some money. I'm pretty loyal. You know, I, I definitely am a brand loyalist. You know, there are certain, you know, I've got three or four in my repertoire that will go, you know, I love to me. You know, I love there's a brand of shirt, Mizzen in Maine. I love those shirts. That's a that's a free plug for Mizzen in Maine. Uh, and I'm very brand loyal, but they don't care about me at all. Because they don't see you as they see you. Actually, they see you as brand loyal to brands other than theirs. They don't look at your spending power. Those two things alone and also believing that it's all about hooking the next. This is what's so funny about it. It's about getting the next generation of consumers, but then once they get to a certain age, they're dropped. They drop them, so that usually probably around 50, so that they can go back and get the younger generation. I don't believe, and I'm sure you agree, that it's either or. Of course you want to grow your pool of new consumers, but you know what? I would suggest you probably have more disposable income now than you did when you were 35, 
you know, or 40 when you're raising your kids and, you know, you're earlier in your career. And so I think that the brands have to look across the generations and look at, this is what they need to look at. They need to look at, at as we deal with, with the older generations, they need to look at age, life stage, and lifestyle. Because the preconceived notions are that when you get to 60, you're probably going to retire very soon. Not true. 33% of 65-year-olds are working. Um, you're probably going to retire and you're going to have a passive lifestyle and probably not buy any new clothes. That is completely outdated life. That is a completely outdated point of view. And again, all the data points to the fact that a, a full third of 65-year-olds are working. People are working well into their 70s. With um, access to healthcare, people are living longer. The old, the, the 50 plus have more than eight trillion with a T, eight trillion dollars in spending power. So. It's a complete recalibration of how the younger creatives and the younger account people in agencies and on the client side, how they look at age, life stage, and lifestyle. Do you know, um, I have a friend who is 48 who has a nine-year-old, a nine-year-old. Now, when she gets to, say, 10 years from now, They'll, they, she won't be, not be marketed any products that reflect the fact that she's got a college student, that she's probably still working, that she's probably driving a great car, because the, the most blunt type of segmentation is by age. And age is no longer an indicator of lifestyle or spending ability. And that's what the marketing industry needs to embrace. So we've got, in effect a large part of our industry cooking off a recipe that's flawed. Some of that, and you touched on it, is ageism. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that. Uh, we have a guy who does work for us, Russ Sapienza, ran the media and entertainment practice for many, many years at PricewaterhouseCoopers, partner. And they have mandatory retirement at 60. To me, that's insane. And I know some of it has to do with partnership agreements and, you know, that bringing the next generation in and there's just so much to go around. I, there's a math part of it, not just an age part of it. Financial math part of it, I should say. But this guy has a tremendous amount to give. He is far from done at 60. Can we talk about ageism? Uh, so in the workplace, Research shows that most people who are looking for people who are looking for jobs at 35 and older looking for jobs believe the biggest impediment to them getting another job is ageism. People, men at 45, women at 40 um, consistently report uh, incidents that they perceive as ageism. And if I, I could just say one thing about that, think about it. You get a job. Let's say you go to college, you get a job out of college. 21, 22, right? And if you start experiencing ageism at 40, if you're a woman, that's not even 20 years. I mean, in 20 years, you're just getting going, right? You know, you're you're really hitting your stride. There's so much more to give. So this concept that a number 
is what defines your value intellectually in your experience. And then let's say your friend worked until he was 65. All of a sudden at 65, everything that he's learned is no longer relevant. It's crazy. Along those same lines, I talked to a group of marketers from a global healthcare company, and they said they wanted to talk about how to market to the aged consumer. I go, okay, well, first of all, we have a problem with terminology, an aged consumer. Secondly, I said, you know, I've, I've been buying your products since I was in my teens. Why is it now that, you know, I'm, I'm at 60 at the time, this is a couple of years ago, that, that all of a sudden you don't understand me? How do you not understand me? I've been buying your products for all these years. And that's only because they're not paying attention because it goes back to that whole thing about being brand loyal and they, you know, they want the younger generation, but ageism in our country is, uh, sounds funny to say this, it's outdated. I mean, you know, when you look back to when social security was established and a lot of the early uh, government programs, it's when people only lived to, they were in their sixties, maybe mid seventies, right? And now that with access to healthcare, the belief is that the first person to live to 150 has been born. It's probably a 10 year old somewhere, right? And that you, Matt, and hopefully me, we have the ability to live to 100. We have access to healthcare, right? Early intervention, all of these, well, you know, financial resources, all, all of those things. And so if people are living to 100 or close to it, even if you say in your 90s, my dad is 98, my mom's 92. So it's fascinating for me to see their life journey. But um, so if you're going to live to almost 100, how would you view education differently? Would you be done at 21? How would you view your, your career? Would you start thinking when you were 50 that, you know, maybe maybe I'll be done in 10 years? You know, it changes everything. It doesn't mean that you have a lot. What it, what it does is it elongates the middle of life. And there's so much to be done in the middle of life. And the other thing that happens in the middle of life, all the research shows people are happiest. We did some research with National Geographic uh, that shows, and you might have seen this in the bulletin, um, that shows that people are happiest in their 70s. So they're happy, they're spending money, many intergenerational families, you know, living together. And so this, this, this ageism, the negative attitudes about ageism have not, about aging, have not caught up with the reality of what it is to age in our country today. Now, let me say, not everyone ages with financial security and with good health care. And we're very aware of that at AARP. And we use our advocacy to support those people as well. But as I'm talking about marketers who are marketing products and services, they have to be able to understand that the middle of life is very extended, which means people's hobbies and their sports and their entertaining and their socializing and their travel, that's all extended. But yet that is, that is slowly, slowly dawning on a very important industry that drives societal understandings and societal norms. You know, I saw something in my newsfeed the other day about a piece of research, maybe you saw it from Amplify, that talked about the need of the advertising industry to redefine male masculinity because of the influence 
the advertising industry can have on um, societal norms and expectations. And I thought, you know what, that's awesome. Let's do that for aging as well. Let's use the power of this industry to change how people view age and what it is to age in this country. You're onto something there. And I think that's to me, because I did not come from the advertising industry. My early career was in politics and sports. And to me, the most exciting part of what we get to do is we work with so many people, you know, the keepers of brands and influences that you can enact change. We have the ability as an industry to move the needle on issues. Not everyone has that, you know, privilege or opportunity. So, so I'm with you on that. Martha, let's, let's talk about successes and let's talk about some of the challenges. Mm -hmm. What have you seen in the last, you know, handful of years, brands under pressure, COVID, obviously, we know enormous impact touched us all in different ways. Looking at brands and who's sort of getting it right. Mm. Where have you had a a receptive audience? Is it particular companies? uh, uh, And I'm not trying to put you on the spot so you can answer more generally, particular genres of the industry. Are there some agency leaders who you think are getting it more than others? But where have you seen some successes and some wins in moving the agenda forward? Well, on the agency side, which as you expect, having grown up in the agency business, I'm watching the agencies all the time. And we have a lot of agencies at AARP as well that we work with. It's interesting because our account teams love this, love working on AARP issues. Um, We work with BBDO and um, they really have embraced our social mission and have done great work for us. Um, and so the account teams, once they step into it, they intuitively understand it. They bring all kinds of personal examples of having seen ageism and how the realization changes their life. But when I look across all the agencies, what I see is a business model that is now not all obviously not privately held ones, but the, the big holding companies and privately traded uh, publicly held companies, the business model is based on profit. That's what they're promising Wall Street, you know? And the least expensive are more junior people earlier in their career. The more expensive you are, the more your healthcare costs are, the the older you are, the more expensive you are to the firms. That inherently does not lend itself to build, fully building out a multi-generational workforce. It just doesn't. So I think that the economics of the industry uh, work against it. Uh, so that's in terms of the agency world. I, you know, I hopefully it's changing. Every once in a while, somebody makes comments that are very hopeful. But for the most part, I think uh, you know the average creative director is under thirty or thirty years old. We have got a long way to go here. Um, in terms of companies and brands. I saw this wonderful Airbnb ad not long ago that had a couple that looked like they're in their 70s, maybe. And they were on, I don't know if it was like another honeymoon or just a getaway weekend or whatever, but it had this kind of hip Italian music in the background. And it showed this 70s couple, you know, doing everything that a 20 something couple would be doing, you know, 
in their bathing suits on the beach and laying in bed with coffee and toasting each other with wine and the whole thing. I thought, you know what? Airbnb gets it. These people have the money. They got the time and they're going to be a big part, you know, of their, of their uh, customer base. Um, the other thing is, you know, the makeup and beauty industry, uh, I should just say the beauty industry has a hard time with this, this issue as well. Um, as you would think, because societal norms are that beauty is about being young and it's about being perfect. And CoverGirl Makeup has uh, May Musk as one of their brand ambassadors. I think May is now, you know, this is Elon's mom. I think she, she's always been a model, but I think she's about 74 now. And she, we um, did a presentation with her on aging and at Cannes. And, you know, one of her famous quotes is, they say that when you get older, you no longer care what you look for, you know, like what you look like. And she said, I'd like to know what age that would be, you know? And so again, breaking down the myth is when you get older, you're not buying makeup. So CoverGirl does a good job and they have other um, ambassadors that are uh, over the age of 60. Um, so there's, you know, there's a variety of different, well, I'll say this indeed, Indeed has this great ad. Maybe you've seen it. It's this guy that looks like he's maybe in his 50s and he's standing in an elevator with a box of stuff. And what you immediately think of is that this is his last day. And the voiceover is like, you knew this day would come, you know, all of your experience and all this kind of stuff. And, and then the flip is when he opens the door and he's starting a new job, which is so brilliant. Because right. there's so much talent in the 50 plus and the 60 plus and people are working longer than ever. And, you know, brands, employers, you know, need to harness that talent. And so I thought Indeed did a great job. But the flip side of it is that if you look at the Monster website and the Indeed website, they have big sections on how to fight ageism in your job search. So, you know, there, there's that as well. But there are brands that are getting it. And what we want to do, Matt, is not just highlight the 85-year-old who ran her 30th marathon. That's awesome. And that is inspiring. But, you know, I'm never going to run a marathon, but I live a healthy lifestyle. We need brands that look less to the outlying extreme older person who does something jaw-dropping and look more at this enormous demographic of people who are living vibrant lives, spending money, traveling, working full time, living with multiple generations. You know, that's what people need to focus on is that not just create an ad with somebody who's much, much older doing something remarkable. Yeah, I think the everyday, not just the extraordinary. And I think yeah. the everyday story here is an awfully big story. Yep. So let's touch on one other area that's really interesting as uh, America continues to change demographically. Uh, very uh, soon, well within our lifetimes, uh, America is going to be more than 50% non-white. The Hispanic population is about 20%, fastest part of the population in America. Black population, give or take 13%, AAPI and others on top of that. Talk about how AARP, because I know this is something that you've prioritized as well, make sure that you're talking to all of us. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a really good point. And we look at this very carefully. Our membership uh, reflects just proportionately um, the African-American and Black population. 
in terms of the numbers in our membership. We're really focused on the um, on the Hispanic audience as well. Everything we do on our website is in Spanish. Most of our material are in, uh, uh, we do in Spanish and, and some Asian languages as well. Uh, so we have a real focus on this and understanding though that, you know, we did some real soul searching and said, what we do as an organization, how is it as relevant to the African-American black community as it is to the Hispanic community? You know, where are we with this? And the, the fact is, Matt, we focus on financial security, healthcare, and what we call fun and fulfillment, right? Which is the fun part of life. And those three areas are directly relevant, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of your gender, regardless of anything. They're just relevant to all people. But how we talk about the some of the events that we create, some of our specialty publications are more targeted, that have a different voice, that, that feature different influencers. Um, so we are absolutely targeting those communities in a way that is relevant to them. But the core issues that we talk about are not the same. I, I'm sorry, I completely misspoke, are totally the same because they are universal in the aging process and what it is to live a life of dignity and security, health, yeah. wealth, and self. Yeah, none of those issues see color or race. You're absolutely right. right. And I love the way that you approach what you're doing there, you know, multiple languages and because you have to speak to people in the way that they want to be spoken to and that they're used to speaking to each other. Uh, and, and that there is some variance there. Well, Martha, this has been such a joy. Uh, uh, we're so happy to get a chance to talk to you. Uh, you've had a great, great career, still very much in the midst of and doing incredible work at AARP and your passion and advocacy. Uh, maybe we can get some more people cooking off the right recipe because they're missing out on a big opportunity. Matt, I appreciate that. And you know what? I'm gonna enlist you as an age influencer, okay? I really appreciate what you've said about AARP and just giving voice to something that, you know what, I, I, I've seen this uh, as I'm sure you have. Nobody thinks about aging until they get to about eh, mid forties and then they start to think about it. And then all of a sudden they're like, whoa, was that like an ageist comment? And this is something that we all need to battle. And it's not just when you're older, younger generations. And I tell my daughters this, I have a 28 year old and a 30 year old, you got to stand up. And when you hear comments, you know, you have to challenge people about it. We would never tolerate racist comments, you know, um, any comments about any individual group, you know, but yet we use humor to talk about ages. And we, you know, try my greeting card that's not got some kind of negative age you know, association. And so we all have to do this together to be able to change the societal conversation. Because you know what? This is a great time to be aging. And again, I'll just close by saying, all the research shows your happiest decades are your 60s and 70s. 50s too, 50s are a good decade as well. So there's much to look forward to. Thank you to you, Matt, for allowing me to share our perspective on my these pleasure, My pleasure, and uh, the uh, song, The Best Is Yet To Come. There sounds, you go. Sounds like uh, that would be a good theme song for our conversation good one. here. And good one. Hopefully we'll see you in a couple of months here in New York, Martha. See you soon.
chaptering, and other structural elements for this podcast are powered by Snackable AI. With the ability to unify all content in one place, have AI distill the best insights instantaneously, and share them seamlessly, businesses on Snackable create more relevant value for their audiences faster than ever before. Learn more at snackable.ai.